Thomas Mann referred to Ludwig Klages as a criminal philosopher, a pan-Germanist, an irrationalist, a Tarzan philosopher, and as a cultural pessimist, the voice of the world's downfall. Yet, Walter Benjamin urged his friend Gershom Scholem to read Klages's latest book in 1930, at a time when Klages was increasingly bending his anti-Semitic philosophy of life, German Lebensphilosophie, in a political direction. It was, Benjamin wrote, without a doubt, a great philosophical work, regardless of the context in which the author may be and remain suspect. Nitzan Lebovich, historian at Lehigh University, has set himself the task of unfolding the ways in which Klages's philosophy became an inspiration for both Nazi cultural politics and a subterranean source in the history of critical philosophy from Benjamin to Giorgio Agamben. In this podcast, we discuss his new book, The Philosophy of Life and Death, Ludwig Klages and the Rise of Nazi Biopolitics, which has been published by Paul Grave, 2013. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Todd Weir. Today, it's my pleasure to be speaking to Nitsan Lebovich, who is Professor of History and Aptor Chair of Holocaust Studies and Ethical Values at Lehigh University. Today we're going to be speaking about his new book with Paul Grave called The Philosophy of Life and Death, Ludwig Klages and the Rise of a Nazi Biopolitics. Nitsan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Todd. Happy to be here. So let's just start off with a question that we usually ask at the beginning, which is just to, if you could tell us a bit about your, yourself and, and what interests and experiences brought you to, to this project. Um, it's a good question, actually, because it was a very long detour. Um, I started actually getting interested in Klages and Lebensphilosophie, philosophy of life in German, um, through the reading of Walter Benjamin, basically. That is critical uh, theory studies uh, of our time. And I came across uh, Klages' name and the notion, this notion of life, the centrality of this concept of life, um, recurrently, repetitively, uh, again and again in Benjamin's texts, which made me very curious and started a long process of, um, of research, actually, that led through Klages to this rhetoric or discourse of life, uh, as I describe it. Um, let me give you just one example uh, for the kind of interest that actually led me uh, to that discourse. Benjamin is writing recurrently about Klages as the epitome of a certain um, fusion or a meeting between aesthetics and politics in the 1920s and 1930s. And the example I very often use in my courses and in lectures is from the theories of German fascism in 1930, where he, that is Benjamin, um, talks about Ernst Junger and different theories of fascism of the time via Klages. That is, he's reading uh, what he calls the the writings or the texts of Klages carried by soldiers to the battlefield, uh, to their training in the 1920s and 1930s, and the, what he calls the chtonic, the chtonic habitues, forces of terror uh, that he thinks Klages is really representing. Um, so for Benjamin and following that myself, that became a very interesting uh, question, actually, for the understanding of the period, the time, the politics, the aesthetics, etc., 
great. Yes, I, I think it's a it's a quite an ambitious book because you're on the one hand trying to present uh, to the readers a, an overview of the philosophy of life of Leibniz philosophy, but at the same time you're also engaging with uh, critical theorists, starting with Benjamin and, and taking us right through to Giorgio Agamben and and others. Um, so we do want to try to get to the bigger framework uh, as we talk, but I thought we might start off with a, a sort of sketch of Ludwig Klages because that will give us a bit of a of a framework that we can kind of hang our discussion on in, in time. Yeah, sure. Uh, Ludwig Klages was born in 1872. He died in 1956. Uh, so he lived a pretty long, prosperous life. Uh, he was born in, ha- in Hanover in Germany to, um, I describe it in the book as an authoritarian father and a sentimental aunt. That is his mother died uh, fairly young. Um, into the middle class. His father was a salesman. Um, he required, he demanded that Klages would uh, study pr- a practical profession so he would be able to take uh, financial care of himself. Um, so he forced him actually into studying chemistry, which Klages did until uh, his PhD, until his gra- he ended his um, graduate studies. Um, he then in the early, um, in the late 1890s and early 1900s actually finished his dissertation in philosophy. He tra- transferred, um, um, his credits to philosophy, uh, finished his, uh, under his dissertation in, in philosophy. And during the time also, uh, got into a small group of Bohemians in Munich. He studied in the uh, Ludwig Maximilian uh, University in Munich, where he met a group of Bohemians and poets around the, the guru and the, the well-known poet at the time, Stefan George. Uh, that was in the 1890s. Um, he joined the group, joined the Bohemian life of the group, experimented with drugs, with orgies, uh, with disguising himself with Dionysian masks and all kinds of awkward cults, as it seems to us. Uh, but at the same time, he also experimented with things that we would consider very interesting and very progressive from the other side of the political uh, fence, that is with feminism, uh, with radical symbolist expressionist art, and with environmentalist, uh, different environmentalist ideas which are still actually the heart of contemporary German uh, notion of the environment, of the landscape. I should maybe add uh, at the end of that, that from there, during the 19, late 1910s and early 1920s, Klages gradually joined um, the more political forces, which until then he tried to actually keep away from. Um, and Part of what my book is trying to do is actually follow this process leading from the group of bohemians and poets and artists um, into what would become later the official discourse of the Nazi party. So it was the kind of language that Klages helped create and formalize that then was taken by the Nazi party, was gradually adapted into the Nazi politics and rhetoric during the later part of the 1920s, and became the official discourse of the Nazi party, uh, represented by uh, key ideologues and thinkers such as uh, Alfred Bäumler and Alfred Rosenberg, the two leading ideologues of the Nazi party, who considered Klages at the same time uh, part and parcel of their own kind of discourse, official discourse of Nazi politics, but also as the, their enemy because he risked their political position as the key thinkers of the party. 
So that course, I think, from the aesthetics to the politics gives you maybe the um, kind of general outline, the framework for the book and what the book is trying to do. After the Second World War, m- many philosophers, also ones that you mentioned in your book, um, George Lukács, um, historians like uh, George Mosse, re- referred to Nazi philosophy as irrational. And um, thinking about Lebensphilosophie, I suppose that's the first term that is associated with Lebensphilosophie. Um, I, I'd like to take us back really to talk about Friedrich Nietzsche, because he's a, a philosopher that people are aware of and, and would associate with this development in Western philosophy. Um, so can you tell us something about the notion of Leben and how it appears in Nietzsche's philosophy? Um, and then perhaps how it develops from there. Yes, certainly. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And, and let me say the following before we actually dive back into Nietzsche's uh, Kulturkritik and his notion of life. The way my, my um, book is actually done or, or uh, the perspective I'm, I'm using is, is a historical one. That is, I'm trying to avoid the post-1945 anachronisms when looking at life um, as, you know, as a set of oppositions between rational and irrational or the scientific, uh, versus the, the mystical. What I'm trying to do here is actually look at Lemon's philosophy, the philosophy of life from the perspective and from within the language the people at the time used in order to describe it. Um, so during the 1910s and 1920s, uh, when the notion of life is, is mentioned among the group of Bohemians we just mentioned, uh, a minute ago, it's being described actually in things we would identify nowadays as, as, uh, discursive, as part of a discourse. Um, among this group, for instance, it's being discussed as a jargon, um, or as a rhetoric or as a language. And the way it's being described is as a, as a language or a jargon that looks at the world from the perspective of the separation between life and death. Um, so people actually describe their daily life as something that is inherently tied to the notion of death and the way death is being reintroduced into how they live their daily life on a daily basis. Um, it means that versus or, or vis-a-vis, the, the, uh, in contrast to the way George Moss and post-1945 historians look at that, when they think about their own life, they don't think about their life as a, an expression of irrationality. They think about their life as an expression of what they call, from their perspective, from the terminology of the time, as something that expresses immediacy, as something that um, um, expresses a flow. They call it the stream of life, Lebensstrom, uh, is something that actually brings action, nature, the organic, the temporal, the whole, Ganzheit, um, and the, what they call the living experience that is Erlebnis, versus the, the, and the Kantian notion of experience, Erfahrung. Um, but all these set of concepts are concepts that they understand as something that actually fuses the different realms of life rather than separating them. So to go back to the metaphor of, of life and death or the difference between life and death, what is interesting for them is actually the fact that life itself already incorporates, integrates a certain notion of absence, um, or a certain notion of of breath, the the this uh, suspense of of 
of breathing into it that actually helps to define what breath, what life is. It's not the end of life. It's rather something that actually defines life from within. Um, now, to bring that back to your question about Nietzsche, what is interesting to me in that respect, in that, in that sense, is that life enables people in a post-Nietzschean way. That is, they relate back to Nietzsche. They build on Nietzsche's use of life in order to, to again, go around uh, rather than tackle normative separations and sets of opposition or contrasts. Um, Nietzsche, for instance, is talking about, about that in terms of drives, right? In tief psychologie, the, the depth psychology, something that expresses drives or needs. Um, he actually defines what he calls the European of the day after tomorrow as, as the one who, who is connected to the drives and the needs to life, to the empowering, uh, uh, of life in order to, 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 distance oneself from usual materialistic separations or normative separations. Uh, we could go here into different forms of psychology and the way Nietzsche uses uh, uh, depth psychology in order to avoid uh, what we then identify with Freudian psychology. But I think that's, that's a good um, starting point for the reconsideration of life as something that is supposedly uh, connecting us to something that is deep, to something that is inherent, to something that is uh, immediate, and at the same time, something that cannot be discussed as either rational or irrational, because the two are actually fused together for people who try to look at reality from the perspective of immediacy. I was, I was thinking about the, um, you know, there's, of course, many approaches to life in Nietzsche's thought. Um, you could go back to the birth of tragedy and the notion of the Dionysian as of as the sort of um, more inchoate force uh, that is paired with Apollonian order to you know create um, art to create culture, yeah. Um, and there's but within within Nietzsche again there are many perspectives, but uh, certainly in the in the birth of tragedy it seems that he's not irrational. It's just merely that there's there's a, a fusion really of perhaps the universal the 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 pre um precognitive element of life with the force of culture and order and so on um you know nietzsche obviously uh, on other points comes from a post christian perspective and wants to criticize the idea of morality based on um revelation or on uh authority and wants instead to ask what is good for life um and to base an ethics on on life itself exactly uh, yeah but but uh, another figure that you you bring in is uh Bachofen. right and and he he works in another opposition Klages picks up something from Bachofen, which is this opposition between matriarchy and patriarchy and he seems very critical having having read your book he seems very critical to the development of Kalagas's thought, you know, you know, and takes things in a, in a slightly different direction than Nietzsche does. Um, could you talk a bit about about Bachof and why Kalagas was interested in the notion of matriarchy and patriarchy? What's with that? 
Yeah. Uh, first, it is important to know that actually Bachofen and Nietzsche uh, belong to the same period, more or less. Bachofen was a bit older than Nietzsche, um, but they even met. They met when Nietzsche uh, taught in Basel. And there is a certain contact uh, between the, the, certainly the philosophies of the two, that is they find themselves standing um, in a, a position that seems to us a bit awkward because they both belong to a certain culture critique, notion of culture critique, that is um, the, the, the commitment to critique, to criticizing culture and norms of the day. And they do it in slightly different ways. And you mentioned uh, some of the ways uh, Nietzsche chooses to, to do so. Klages then, Klages and his friends actually from the George group uh, um, relate back to both Nietzsche and Bachofen. They even actually try to, there's a famous story when they contact uh, Elisabeth Forster Nietzsche, who actually was a disciple of Klages. Um, and they ask her to try and create a dancing circle around Nietzsche when um, a year before his death in 1899, uh, trying to actually cure him, uh, practicing all kinds of Dionysian cults around him. They believe that would actually be able to, to cure him. Um, but to go back to, to, the, to the relationship or the, the contact between Nietzsche and, and Bachofen, we can see how the two are uh, looking back at idealism and science and empiricism and materialism of the day um, and taking the opposite route that is trying to argue that there's an alternative to what comes out of that 19th century um, tradition uh, of scientific thinking. Nietzsche does it in a certain way, in one way, uh, looking or developing his system of perspectivism uh, that you, you mentioned a minute ago. Bachofen is actually doing something um, uh, similar, but, but also different at the same time. What he does is actually doing some kind of a mythological research into the origins of culture. His basic argument, a very interesting one, is that in fact, scientific, the scientific tradition that we know of from the 19th century is born out of something that he calls phallogocentrism. Derrida then takes it. So he says, actually, what we know is actually conditioned by a certain logical thinking developed by classical thinkers in Greek or in Greece already, in ancient uh, Greek culture, uh, Greek philosophy, and then taken by the Renaissance uh, and evolved into the scientific uh, thinking of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, but which takes us away from the pre-Greek time. So what he tries to do is actually, in a close reading of myths, to try and, and bring back up bring back up to the surface the origins of what he calls a matriarchy culture. That is something that opposes the phallogocentrismus, right? The, the, the opposite of the patriarchal, logical thinking, positivist, uh, positivistic uh, thinking of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, the way he described it, and actually finding different symbols and different um, uh, remains of this matriarchal culture that were able to survive as a hidden text within that kind of culture, within that uh, uh, history of, of mythology, if you like. Um, in 1861, he writes something that became a classic for later feminist thinking, talking about something that is called he calls the mother right. That is the notion that when we go back again to a certain 
language of symbolism that we inherited, what we find there is actually a whole set of female, female-ish uh, symbols that were then erased or at least hidden in culture, in the culture we are taught, um, and that are then, um, we get to think of as something that actually belongs to the pathological or to something that is anti-normative, non-logical, irrational, and that he tries to bring back into the everyday life. So you can see now, again, we discussed before the, 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 op- the set of, op- the, the set of oppositions between, say, the rational and the irrational. Bachofen is a very good uh, case to actually try and, and cut across that set of oppositions. Um, if we go back to the political implications of that, starting with Bachofen, Bachofen actually, um, discusses with disgust, you know, uh, the, the Prussian culture of his time. And he talks about the Prussian culture and politics of the 19th century, specifically his enemies, Theodore Mommsen, the historian of Rome. He says, if we look at that kind of historicism, what we see is a logical, positivistic kind of thinking that creates history in a linear, as a linear process. What I'd like to do, he says, is actually look at things from the perspective of symbolism of the phenomena and therefore actually trying to look at things as incorporating more layers or the potential for repetition. And here we see how Nietzsche comes into the picture, the potential for a repetitive thinking, symbolic thinking that does not abide to a certain linearity or simplistic sort of form of, of logic of modernity. Very good. Now the, the, um, I thought there were the, the reason I found that the Bachofen particularly useful for for thinking about Klages, um, and maybe we'll get dip, deeper into Klages at this point, but uh, this this notion of of the opposition of two cultures uh, in Bachofen, I, I believe it was the Roman and the Greek um, to a certain degree, the, the uh, let's say the the, the pre European pagan versus the the phallocentric uh, rational Greek. Um, and, and Klages in his, I guess, one of his major works, uh, it's called the spirit as adversary of the soul. And he has an opposition between spirit, which I think here means mind, right? It's, uh, mind as the adversary of the soul and mind, mind or intellect, yeah. intellect. Yeah. And, and he develops this opposition, not around, uh, Greek and Roman rather, but, but around, Eventually, I think, uh, as you actually bring up repeatedly in your in your text, is really the opposition of Jewish and German. Yeah. Um, could you say a bit about that? Uh, what what is, I guess, first of all, meant by the title "Spirit as Adversary of the Soul," and then how does he develop a, a an anti-Semitic argument out of it? Right. Um, the book itself, as you mentioned, was published between 1929 and 1932 in three uh, volumes, which then were um, re-editioned in two, um, as two volumes. Um, it builds on a certain radical notion of uh, dualism, what Klager sees as, as a certain dualistic system, um, and that he cuts across as, on the one hand, uh, two poles, which he then radicalizes and in an interesting way deconstructs. Let me, let me explain, explain what I mean by that. When Klangas talks about, about Geist, what he means is really the tradition that we just discussed of logic 
leading from the ancient Greek culture via Judeo-Christianity into modern science. That for him is a representative of the Socratic tradition uh, that he identifies with Geist. Now, that's interesting because to, to a certain extent, you know, Klages' own, Klages's own system actually builds on romantic, a romantic tradition that we tie, you know, in philosophy with, with, with idealism, right? And idealism is all about the Geist, the spirit. For Klages, Klages actually complicates that picture and says, look, when I talk about about Geist, even within Romanticism, what I'm, I'm actually focusing on is, is the tradition that actually blinded us, blinded us to the pre, as you said just a minute, uh, a minute ago, Todd, the, the pre-European, the pagan uh, roots of our modern culture. So he traces these origins, much like Nietzsche and Bachofen, within the European culture of the 19th century, including within the Romantic system that he uses then. So it's, it complicates the, the picture. What he chooses to uh, tackle it uh, through or, or to, to, to examine it uh, uh, with is actually the notion of the soul. It sounds to us, again, like a certain Cartesian system of, of oppositions, but Clarges, again, complicates that. He says, look, when we look at the soul, what we try to do is something that, that looks at the soul from an, with an intuitive uh, set of tools, but the very set of intuitive to- tools, this set of, of intuitions, what we see as intuitions, actually incorporates within that a certain no- notion of language that mediates our intuitions, our experiences, our impressions. So it develops this system that, um, that actually phenomenologizes, uh, that, that actually tries to look at things from the perspective of the phenomena um, and, and create an order that, again, complicates these two poles. And what he says, what he does, is actually creates um, um, different systems of handwriting or typology of characters um, that, that would create some kind of an order within, um, within that system. He tries to take out the Geist, the logical thinking, the Judeo-Christian element from the culture, equate it with a certain Judeo-Christian tradition, and say, look, within the culture of the last 2,000 years, what we see is actually a certain politicization of the Geist, of the spirit, of the intellect, and turning that into a materialistic tool of control. So he equates that with a certain... Jewish element inside culture, and then says we can actually see or trace that within nowadays graphology. So we can actually take the handwriting of a certain uh, Jewish thinker, such as Georg Zimmel, say, a handwriting that he actually analyzes, and he says we can see in Georg Zimmel's sociology the expression of Jewish elements intellectual elements, geistige, spiritual, uh, intellectual, it's not spiritual, it's intellectual uh, elements that express that kind of materialistic, logical thinking. And he opposes that to the romantic tradition of the genius, such as he talks about Nietzsche and Goethe and uh, and even Bismarck. Um, and he says we can oppose the Jewish element or the intellectual, the Judeo-Christian element, the materialistic element, to the genius, the true intuitive genius that is able to complicate that picture. So these are the two poles uh, of the spirit versus the soul or the intellect versus the soul. And Klages 
gradually politicizes um, that opposition and, and equates that with the politics of his time in 1929, between 1929 and 1932, that becomes identified with a pro-Nazi, fascist, anti-Semitic discourse. It is interesting, though, just as a um, um, an epilogue to to the kind of uh, lineage, the long li- the long lineage that I um, the long durée that I just explored here, to say that in spite of this anti-Semitic tone, it still is interesting enough for people from the progressive uh, side, such as Walter Benjamin, for instance, to actually um, feel that the work is captivating, feel that there is a power to the work that is able to step out of, again, the, the usual boundaries, the usual norms of their time. And actually, he recommends in 1930 the work to Gershom Scholem sitting, sitting in Jerusalem and saying, look, in spite of the suspicious overtones of that work, he means, of course, the anti-Semitic overtones, it's a fascinating one, and you have to deal with it. We cannot, we cannot ignore such works. They, they, they hold too much critical power to be ignored. I wanted to ask you about a few of the, the terms that uh, Klages developed and is associated with practices um, to try to tease out a little bit more about, about this particular philosophy. One of the terms that he's associated with is graphology. Uh, can you tell us something about that? Yes, of course. Um, Klages is considered to be the father of, grapho- of German graphology, the, the, the person who created the system of signs, of written signs in the, the German language. But of course, he doesn't invent, invent it himself. Uh, in fact, he takes his graphology, he grounds his graphology in Johann Kaspar Lafater's, the, the theologian and thinker, uh, second half of the 18th century. Um, Johann Kaspar Lafater is interested in physiognomy, physiognomy. That is the science, the science of facial expressions, um, which then different people think actually would be applied, could be applied to uh, handwriting, and that Klages then, again, creates a system. In 1896, he establishes the, the German grapholo- uh, Society of Graphology with uh, two other friends of him, of his, uh, Georg Meyer and Hans Busse, the sculptor and the, the doctor. Um, and they, all of them, all three of them, discuss graphology based, grounded in physiognomy as a science, phenomenological science that looks at the phenomena again. That is, it looks at a system of signs from the perspective of how they look, how they are seen, and trying to trace back from the sign a certain state, internal state, or drive. So we can see that the direction here is always uh, coming from the outside, trying to, um, if you like, you know, back, penetrate, backward, uh, uh, drive back into the inside and explore that. Um, Corinna Tritel, a historian, uh, wrote about the science of the soul, uh, about graphology and physiognomy, as a post-romantic science that is able to extend, transcend the, the politics uh, and the norms of the time. Clagas is certainly trying to use graphology in that sense and tying it, by tying it to, again, physiognomy and what he calls the Lebensgefühl, that is the sense notion of life. Um, in 1907-1908, he, uh, he actually 
finished, he established with his friends a, a journal, which in 1907, 1908, um, um, he stops publishing. But at the same time, he establishes a seminar, popular pseudo, uh, 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 popular seminar that many famous people actually take part in. Um, that, and, and the, the, purpose of the seminar is actually to tie all these things together, that is take physiognomy and graphology and then a certain psychology of characters and tie all of them together into a system of interpretation, uh, phenomenological, again, uh, interpretation that would enable people to understand other human beings on the basis of seeing, of what is seen, of, of this uh, expression, even calls that the science of, exp- of expression, Ausdruck's um, um, Wissenschaft. Um, and, and it's an interesting phenomena because it, it becomes actually a leading voice in Munich of the time. So people like Elisabeth Fosser, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's sister is, is taking part in, in that seminar. Karl Jaspers, the, the famous philosopher, uh, is taking, uh, the seminar, is participating in the seminar. Um, Heinrich Wolflin, the, the famous, uh, historian of art is, is participating in the seminar. And each of them is taking these, these different systems of signs in order to understand their own, their own science, own private science, what they develop then into a discipline. So we see this explosion of different disciplines based on different system of science that Clagas is uh, trying to, to characterize in different ways. And before I, I, I'm concluding that kind of section, let me just say, uh, uh, clarify what I mean by that. Clagas is trying to tackle the notion of graphology through a set of concepts that he ties to life but that he sees in completely aesthetic terms. So one of the key concepts, for instance, that he uses for graphology and physiognomy and life itself is something that he calls the form niveau, that is the level of form um, that, again, he understands as a system of signs that one needs to actually um, uh, organize in a way that would enable us to uh, typologize or or create a certain order, a certain hierarchy of types uh, um, um, from behind or um, uh, under these these signs. Um, Armin Schaeffer, for instance, the historian, is is talking on graphology of the time as a system of signs. He says the man at the time is seen as someone who's writing with whole the whole of his of his body or her body. So it's not just about the handwriting, it's actually about the movement of the body, the flow of a certain notion of life that comes from within and then explodes into the page. Um, Helmut Leffen, the historian and theoretician, is talking about Clarkes as the first consistent relativity theorist of expression. So we see, you know, all the, this explosion of different disciplines and, and, and uh, ideas at the time that are then taken into different disciplines uh, but share, I think, the certain interest, obsession, one could say, uh, with life as a form, as an aesthetics, a set of aesthetic of, of, of signs, um, system of signs, and a form of expression. That brings us really to the next term that I wanted to talk about, which was um, image and build. Um, you, you, you talk about the importance of seeing for Klages, of reading visual signs. Um, there's a, this leads back really to that, that opposition of the German and the, and the Jewish, I suppose, in his thought. But uh, what is the relationship between image and script in his cultural criticism? That's an excellent question. Um, which one could take um, into into 
different different directions. I'm I'm thinking in a while you you ask me that. Um, I recently um, read somewhere that actually the Irish were the ones who introduced um, the space between the words. The the notion that actually the words on the page should be spaced. Because until then, until the fifth century, until the Irish actually uh, started introducing texts with spaces in between, uh, Latin texts in in Rome, in written by the church, were actually um, um, the, the the lines on the page were were connected, the words on the page were connected. Um, so there's there's a way to think about language as a system that that incorporates not only signs, um, um, you know, a set of signs, but actually is organized on the page in a way that would enable us to think about not only how we talk, but how we think and how we feel. And the way, you know, we now are used to think about, about our way of expression of, of even verbal expression. When I talk now, the, the the moments I breathe are the moments we would introduce commas in, into our language. Clacus is actually trying to get back to these moments, which he calls Urbild, that is the or image, uh, um, from within language, from within the systems that are, are written or seen on one's face or on the page, and actually explore within them not only how one expresses uh, him herself, but how one feels about how they express themselves. So in a way, the comma becomes even more important for him than what is actually written. That is, the form is becoming more important than the content in some ways. This is for him, again, something that he identifies with a certain primordial image, primordial drive, that is an image that is incorporated in the way we tend to think about ourselves and our, our world, the cosmos. He's one of the fathers of, of what he's called at the time the cosmic uh, thinking, um, cosmological thinking. And for him, that kind of cosmic drive is actually what really leads us. It's, it's not the logics that is, is put down on the page or into, into systems that, that you know, we, we are trained by. In turn, that is something that enables him to actually, um, again, retrieve a pre-Judaic, pre-Judeo-Christian tradition and, and try to look back at culture, at our modern culture from that perspective. He tries to go back into something that um, finds, via Bachoff and Nietzsche, finds these primordial uh, moments within culture and and resurface them, brings them uh, uh, backward to, to our way of, of expression and, and seeing in the world. Let me give you an example for, for what he means. One of the arguments that Bachofen used, as I mentioned before, was linearity versus roundness or wholeness. So what Bachofen is trying to do, actually, when he retrieves these mythological matriarchic images... He's actually arguing, look, the ancient Greece and then the Judeo-Christian culture taught us to think in a way that is linear, historicist, and progressivist. What interests me is actually something that is, that is repetitive and roundish. So he tries to find in our own language or, or language of symbols, the symbolic language, if you like, um, the roundish symbols and actually say, there is this potential embedded within our language that we usually suppress, that we usually try to affiliate with a non-normative or with what is non-logical, what is irrational, 
but that actually incorporates an equal part of our intuition and the way we see the world as the linear and progressivist and, and logical. So what Bachhoff and, and following him, the Georgi group and Klages and his followers in turn trying to do is actually go back to that matriarchic, roundish, repetitive, uh, circular notion they identified with the sun, with the egg, with the eyeball, right? All phenomenological signs, things that, that are seen or enable us seeing in the world. Um, and through them, actually bring back something that goes wrong, goes, you know, from 1000 BCE to 1900. And, and say, look, we are at a point where we understand that civilization only brings um, a certain mass industrialization, destruction, and death, literal death. What we need to actually incorporate back into our culture and life is the notion that death is part of life and therefore something that we can experience on a daily life without actually materializing. So we don't need to create weapons. It's, it's really a strange combination to understand how Something that sounds so pacifistic then becomes actually the core of Nazi thinking, of an, an annihilatory uh, uh, system of thinking. But that's the kind of paradox I'm trying to explain as a historian. Excellent. Yeah, I was, you know, the, the reason I asked that question about image and script is, is uh, as I finished your book, I was, I was thinking about the uh, the dialectic of enlightenment by uh, Horkheimer and Adorno, and, and they have a whole argument in there about the development of Western rationality and the notion that the, that the Nazis or the, the Nazi movement in some sense was a reaction against a, uh, what was experienced perhaps as a dehumanization of, uh, life through rationality. Um, and the notion that they were, I think they put in there somewhere that they were, they were angry um, about the notion that logos is is going to surpass image, um, the notion that there is a uh, the the for, um, what do you call it a, the ban on images in the Bible, um, yeah. and they take that quite literally and and say that what the Nazis were doing was uh, in perpetrating the Holocaust was um, effectively. Um, seeking revenge on uh, on the the logos uh, for having destroyed their mythic uh, origin, their mythic culture, and uh, you know it's quite a sweeping argument. And you read it, and you you think it's fantastically original when you read the Dialectic of Enlightenment. And um, and I guess this is one of the points of your of your book, really, is that uh, uh, you know in a sense they're taking Clagus and turning him on his head, and uh, and but really that- using a lot of his own. Um, thinking, it would seem to me, uh, yeah. making these arguments. Yeah, Benjamin and Adorno actually, ben, Benjamin Adorno and, Hor- and Horkheimer actually uh, correspond about Benjamin's plan to write a book about Klages and Jung. And what he's really very interested in during the 1930s, and he does that in some writings, for instance, the essay about Kafka. He looks at Kafka from the perspective of of these Bachofenic or images uh, and interprets the, the whole writing, the whole corpus of Kafka's writing as a Bachofenic expression of matriarchic power of the Ur image. Um, Benjamin is, is corresponding with, with Adorno and, Ho- and Hochheimer during the 1930s about, about this plan and actually connects, brings the two together, that is the Ur image and the, the archetype. And he says, look, we, we, again, we need to understand 
the culture of our time is an expression of archetypes or of or images because we try to suppress that for too long and it explodes. It explodes now. And then a, a very interesting debate starts between him and Adorno or uh, Holkheimer at the end. He's the one who actually censors the project and says, this is way too far, going way too far, right? I mean, it doesn't really uh, feed the Frankfurter Schule, the, the Frankfurt School uh, ideology. But Adorno gets into a very interesting discussion with Benjamin about the, ima- the or image. Mm-hmm. What are the implications of the or image and how could we actually discuss it and whether the or image in itself could be materialized or not? Yeah, well, let's let, let's come back at the at the um, the end uh, to talk some more about the relationship between Clogus and critical theory. But the the last sort of uh, subject on my my uh, my, hist- my historical uh, set of questions here uh, has to do then with the transition into um, Nazi biopolitics, as you call it in your title. Um, what in in your mind is the contribution specifically of Clogus? Uh, to Nazi biopolitics, how are his ideas translated? Um, and uh, I guess my my question is: Is it to what degrees? Do, to what degree do you read Klages as a symptom of a development in philosophy, or to what degree do you think he's actually a central figure? Um, again, it's a, it's an excellent question. They they let me again uh, meet the question from a perspective of a historian. That is. When I talk about biopolitics, I really look at the history of the concept itself. Uh, the concept itself was actually used the first time in 1920 in a work by Rudolf Kielen, the geopolitical thinker, uh, someone who's actually later identified with the notion of Lebensraum, the Nazi Lebensraum, notion of living uh, space. And a concept that is then used affirmatively by different Nazi thinkers during the 1930s and 1940s in order to discuss the ways they would like to control uh, populations, mostly in the in the East, in Eastern Europe, uh, that is then occupied by uh, by the German Nazis. So the concept itself, the biopolitician, the biopolitical, is being used in a certain framework that belongs, historically speaking, to the corpus, to the terminology of the 1920s and 1930s. It's then resurfacing in 1975, 1976 uh, with Michel Foucault, um, who talks about biopolitics and biopower um, and then jumps into our own days, uh, a school of, of critical biopolitics represented by such names as, as Giorgio Agamben, Roberto Esposito, uh, Hart and Negri, etc., um, who discuss, and here I tie it back to my own interest, um, biopolitics as the total politicization of life. Now, what do they mean by the total politicization of life? Let's go back to Foucault for a, second, uh, for a moment, because Foucault, I think, but, is the one... Before who, we get into the, into the critical uh, repercussions of Clagus's thought, I just, I, okay. I was curious about, or maybe you're going to go there anyway, but I wanted to get, um, just, just make that link between Clagus's cultural criticism of the late 20s and what you mentioned, which is the way he gets picked up by key Nazi thinkers. Um, so okay. maybe we can say something about that first and then get into the, the post-1945 history, if, if you will. Yeah, happily so. So Klages is taking this notion of, of um, biopolitics. Actually, he tries to talk about, not tries, he talks about um, uh, something he calls in the early 1920s already uh, as the biocentric. That's a key 
term for, for Klages, the biocentric. The biocentric, he understands, is something that, again, unites the aesthetics of life with the actual expression of life. He goes back um, to the aesthetics of the cell, the biological cell, and, and discusses or rather uh, retrieves a debate belonging to the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, between two schools of scientific schools, actually, of interpretation, the, something that is called the epigenesis and something that is called the preformative. These are two schools, preformation. These are two schools that actually try to look at the cell as either something that is um, evolving in an organic way, something that would fit maybe more into the Darwinistic uh, uh, way of looking at things, or on the other hand, something that is actually incorporating within that already something that um, Hans Drischen and later biologists call the whole of life. That is, the cell itself as a unit is already incorporating, like the egg, like the sun, like, you know, these images of life, of roundish life, the potential, the pure potential of the life that will come out in the human being, in the human um, uh, uh, form that evolves out of it. So for them, rather than evolutionary process, progressive process, there's kind of a leap between the aesthetic form of the cell, the potential it incorporates, and the kind of explosion it gets into an expression of life. When Klages talks about the biocentric, that's the kind of image that he's interested in. That is the cell as a pure potential of whole life. And um, a certain circle of, of disciples around him uh, organizes that into a system of thinking. There's a circle of disciples uh, around him in the 1920s, later 19, uh, late 1920s and early 1930s that is uh, called the Arbeits, Arbeitskreis für Biozentrische Forschung, the circle for of biocentric uh, uh, research um, that creates a whole philosophy, Leben's philosophy, but that uh, focuses specifically on the biocentric in order to cultivate a fusion of uh, this pure potential, aesthetic potential on the one hand, and it's interpret, it's not interpretation, it's translation or explosion, uh, as they like to discuss it, uh, within different forms of expression, erscheinung, appearance. Um, the circle of disciples then actually creates very strong links with the Wehrmacht, the Gestapo, the SS, um, some of its key activists within the circle uh, become leading thinkers within experiments. The Wehrmacht and the SS or the Gestapo then are, are actually um, uh, creating. There's even a plan to create a whole SS school around that system, uniting the biocentric with Klages' notion of graphology and characterology. Um, and that circle actually uh, uh, integrates or brings Klages' Lebensphilosophie into the Nazi system, creates it as a Nazi, uh, uh, straight, uh, direct Nazi uh, philosophy. Let me just say uh, one last thing about biocentrism. Biocentrism, again, to, to um, run the, 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 the description, focuses on the structure of the cell um, and unites that with Clarice's terminology of life, that is with the organic, the whole, the non-linear, the repetitive, and the pure. But what it does simultaneously is actually ties that straight 
to what we talked before. That is, it looks at the biocentric as the opposite, the straight opposite of linearity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, progressive morality, and something that it identifies in the late 1920s and early 1930s with democracy, liberalism, bourgeoisie, materialism, and normativity. So for them, for this circle and for Klages, the biocentric is the alternative to democratic politics, logical politics, rational politics that tries to create an order, parliamentary system, right, uh, and transparency um, in favor of something that they identified with a certain fundamental aesthetics, to quote uh, Stefan Breuer's uh, title, uh, fundamental aesthetics um, um, of the cell, of the organic, of the biological. Excellent. So the um, wh- what happens to Klages during the Third Reich? So Klages runs a very ambivalent uh, life during the time. First, one should note that he actually escapes being drafted uh, um, as a soldier already in the First World War. So in 1915, he actually leaves Germany and immigrates or moves to Switzerland. Uh, he lives in a place called Kirch, uh, um, uh, Kirchberg, uh, near Zurich in the mountains. Um, uh, not far actually from Thomas Mann at a certain period. Uh, and, and becomes then a citizen of Switzerland. He, uh, travels pretty often back to Munich where, uh, his family, his sister and his nephew, uh, still live. Um, and, and keeps on the circle of, of disciples that is uh, living there in the south of Germany and, and cultivates the relationship with them. So they meet sometimes in Munich, sometime, uh, sometimes in, in the Bavarian Alps and sometimes in, in Switzerland at, at his house. Um, during the Third Reich, or from the late 1920s uh, and into the 1930s, Klages um, uh, becomes at a certain moment, the key representative of Leben's philosophy, of philosophy, the philosophy of life in Germany. So different strands, whether from left or right, and one should note that there is also a, a uh, different lefty, that there is a left-wing interpretation of Leben's philosophy. Benjamin is, is only one representative of that uh, uh, lineage, uh, but there are different uh, thinkers actually taking Leben's philosophy into the left-wing. Klages becomes slowly, during the later half of the 1920s, identified with a right-wing anti-Semitic voice that actually incorporates or adapts Leben's philosophy into a pro-fascist, pro-racist, uh, pro-Nazi kind of rhetoric. The Nazis then start to discuss Klages' philosophy um, in the early 1930s and, and, interestingly enough, actually struggle with it. For them, Klages actually is too static. He's not political enough. His resistance to the Geist is creating uh, um, a certain problem for them because it creates a system that is very passive, that actually, in spite of its call for action, it only calls for, for an emotional action, for a certain phenomenological expression, but not a political, not a military action. And they're interested, of course, in translating the discourse into a military action. So what they're interested in is actually someone who would take that kind of discourse and implement that as a military corpus of terms, a certain psychology of 
um, uh, of heroism. They're actually trying to create, as I mentioned in the SS, for instance, a school that would enable them to identify characters in the Klagesian system, but in order to make them good commanders. They're not interested in, in just characters per se. They want the immediate translation into action, military action. So during the 1930s, the relation between Klages and, and the Nazi party is very ambivalent. On the one hand, he gets a lot of, of um, honorary signs from them. He becomes uh, a member of the Nazi academy, uh, the, the high academy. Um, he's, he's getting the, the, the um, Goethe medal, actually, 1932. Um, by Hindenburg, then becomes one of the key leaders of the Nazi uh, um, Lebensphilosophie. He's teaching in different universities. But at the same time, they're very ambivalent. And actually, in 1938, Alfred Rosenberg, the, the head uh, ideologue, ideologue of, of the Nazi party, declares war, to a certain extent, on Klages. Him and Alfred Bäumler, the two key ideologues and philosophers of the Nazi party, because they feel that Klages is taking them away from the kind of military, uh, militant activity that they're interested in and the translation of, of aesthetics into pure action and immediate action, trying to get reflective or aesthetic thinking out of the picture completely um, and create a system of, of signs that would enable them to actually control better their soldiers. So from 1938, actually, the Klage circle is, is under a lot of pressure inside the Nazi system, which doesn't mean that some key elements within that, especially the, the, this biocentric circle that I just mentioned, do not participate. They do participate and actually lead a very fertile and very, uh, um, profitable life within the Nazi system. But Klage's Leibniz philosophy becomes a problematic sign one should actually, a problematic system one should actually be careful with, uh, when applied within the Nazi system. Klages himself uh, um, keeps his anti-Semitic um, um, opinions up to the end of the Nazi uh, era, in spite of later denunciations when the, the Allies actually occupied Germany and then uh, investigate his, his um, influence on the, Nazi, on the Nazi system. He completely denies that. But that's not true. One of the things I'm trying to show in the book is that he was a very loyal Nazi up to the end. He was a very loyal uh, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semite, actually, up to the end. And even beyond uh, 1945, even though he learns better how to hide those kind of, of views. So to move now to the, to the, I guess, heritage of Klages since 1945, uh, what's interesting about Klages is, as you're suggesting, here's a person who is developing a kind of theoretical apparatus that is appropriated by certain elements in the Nazi party to think themselves about something called biopolitik. Um, but at the same time, this philosophy, this, this theoretical apparatus, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, is also then appropriated by critics of biopolitik after 1945. Is that true? Yeah, that's very precise. Um, again, as a historian, the way the way that seemed to me almost inevitable in that respect is exactly where I started researching the topic and where we started our discussion. That is from Walter Benjamin, because um, Walter Benjamin, of course, escapes to France, to Paris, and lives in Paris. And different people actually um, befriend him there, not to mention the, the German Jews that then immigrate to the US or immigrate to Palestine, Israel. Um, and then sometimes, you know, like the Frankfurt School actually back to Germany. 
And these different critical schools then develop many of the ideas that Benjamin takes from Bachofen and Klages and Nietzsche and develop them into a critical system of science that um, is taking exactly the kind of the, these kind of aesthetics of life um, and, and uh, out of the normative versus non-normative uh, uh, language or, or separation, clear separation. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean, again, as a historical um, uh, lineage. One of the things that uh, uh, happened with the Klage circle is that his reading, his phenomenological reading is taken by psychiatrists and doctors, medical doctors, and then applied to an interpretation of mental illnesses. One could mention here the Nietzschean psychiatrist Hans Prinzhorn, which I, I mentioned in, in, um, in my book and actually describe and, and follow. In 1922, Hans Prinzhorn, following Klages explicitly, I mean, he's taking Klages as a leading voice in his book, uh, goes back to interpret um, the images created by the mentally ill and say, look, when we try to understand them on a psychological basis or a psychoanalytical basis, Freudian basis, we completely misunderstand them. It's not about the normative versus the non-normative. It's about how they experience the or image and how they actually take the or in the powers of the or image into their own non-normative way of thinking and representation in the world. So what he looks at is actually the paintings that the mentally ill, that, that uh, um, ill people actually produce and through them tries to reinterpret not only their illnesses, which he doesn't understand as a, as a simple illness, but as an expression of a non-normative understanding of culture, um, but not only them, but also the, the kind of or images we discussed or the archetypes that, that we discussed before. So they understand something above, above their head. Um, that again enables a certain potential of understanding of, of the um, deconstruction, the deconstructing power that lies in between the normative and the non-normative. Someone like Kangiem, Georges Kangiem, then takes that, again, straight from the thinking, the German thinking of the 1920s, and applies that as a scientific history and a historical thinking, which then by turn taken by Foucault, his disciple, his student, and applied to Foucault's own understanding of biopower and the understanding of life as a system that enables him to actually go around again the, the, the usual separations or oppositions were trained in, a system of, of, of oppositions were trained by. Um, now, let me go back to where we stopped before, that is Foucault's understanding of life and biopower, because I think that would tie us back into our own day and the critical potential of that kind of discourse um, um, as it explodes again after 9-11. Foucault talks about biopower as a power that actually places, I'm paraphrasing now, so excuse me if I'm not very, very precise in the language, but as a power that actually places itself not in the ability to kill, not through, via the ability to kill, but actually in the what he calls the layer or the, the level of life. And what he means by that, the level of life, the layer of life is actually the, the level of life and race and population because it is there where power or the sovereign that controls life that is able to actually control us vis-a-vis -vis or, or um, uh, via what Foucault calls uh, technologies of control. And what Foucault does is actually, again, a history of the 
technologies of control of life via the sciences that are uh, developed since the 18th century, sciences such as statistics and demography and the science of life, these different uh, psychiatric uh, tools of control uh, or medicine. And he shows that these are actually evolving not straight, not, not in a direct way as an attempt to actually only help us, but also as a way to control uh, our way of thinking about life, about procreation, about uh, experience. And Foucault traces here what he calls the, 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 the biopower, that is the power to control the way we think, for instance, about sexuality, right? The way we think about our own body, the, the way our body is supposed or not supposed to actually bring life, uh, uh, create life in the world. Um, so that happens in 1975-1976 as a as a voice exploding into you know critical theory as a voice and then taken again after 9/11 when Giorgio Agamben and Esposito and Hartenegri um uh develop into a system of interpretation of a critical interpretation and again it's a system of critical interpretation that we can take back all the way back to Nietzsche but that retrieves or goes back explicitly in an intense, almost obsessive way uh, to the thinking of Walter Benjamin. And behind Benjamin, again, the Bachofenic slash Klagesian uh, uh, system of thinking about life as a way to, um, again, avoid straight logical oppositions while actually radicalizing or via the radicalization of, of polar oppositions. Um, I think that that should suffice as, as a preliminary explanation. I'm not sure how, how much we should actually get into the theory of sovereignty or the, the, the theory of control that is actually uh, uh, developed out of it. But of course, I, I can give um, um, easy examples for, for um, how it's being translated and, and operated. Well, yeah, I think we'd have to leave that for another conversation. Um, but I do think it's, it's a fascinating, um, you know, evocative really element of your book that, that percolates throughout it really but but almost could use a another treatment you know perhaps just an essay or something but the uh you know the way in which that the the philosophies are appropriated inverted you know turned from prescriptive normative arguments against us an existing culture taken and then turned into a critique uh in inverted form by by critical theorists fascinating um potential in that um and as you say potentially going over decades really um yeah. so uh, and i think the connection to agamben i must say i'm not familiar with his work enough to be able to um to establish how how critical that is to his thought but um it's certainly evocative it, it is it is critical and i think it's one of the light motifs that go through all the work starting with actually agamben was the the publisher of walter benjamin in italian um, and it's not by coincidence that, that, you know, Benjamin's notion of, of life or what Agamben calls the force of life, the, the life form, uh, is becoming one of the leading metaphors of his notion, understanding of, of sovereignty in our time. Yes. Well, that's, um, um, something I would, I would like to know more about, but, uh, I, I think I've taken enough of your time, um, Nitsan. So, uh, maybe just as a, as a final, um, question, uh, a quick, Quick uh, answer to a question of, uh, you know, where, where, what are you working on these days? What's your, what's your new project now that you've finished this book? Um, I have a few projects actually evolving out of that 
project, and they're all tied again to this interdisciplinary interest uh, in the meeting between a history of concepts, um, the history of termino- certain terminological uh, um, development, and the political implications. And I believe that a contemporary intellectual history must actually pay very close attention to, to this meeting because uh, a lot of what occurs around us now, um, interestingly enough, I think really lies or could be placed in that specific axis. So what I did developed in the last few years are actually a series of projects uh, that are now starting to uh, uh, come out. Uh, there's a certain, there's a project uh, about German Jewish thinking um, and temporality about time, the way the German Jewish thinkers are all obsessed about time, starting with Benjamin, of course, but I go back to Zimmel and Hannah Arendt and Jakob Taubes and, and Martin Buber and others. There's a um, different project uh, that goes back actually into an interpretation of Zionism and and at how uh, such terminological interest actually had an impact on the history or the development of, of Zionism in Israel um, and, and and the impact of actually German Jewish thinkers within Israel on that um, on that ideology, on that rhetoric. Um, again, that's a completely separate uh, project. And the third uh, one I should mention is actually, I just finished uh, editing two co-edit, actually, uh, two volumes. One about the history of catastrophes that is taken straight from Benjamin's uh, um, interest in catastrophes and our own times uh, obsession. We can look at, for instance, uh, films, uh, contemporary wave of, of catastrophe films uh, that are, are doing that. Um, and something that I'm dealing uh, intensely with. Uh, so I co-edited a book about the history of catastrophes and a book about actually nihilism, about nihilism as, as a, again, a form of expression of cultural critique or radical critique that, that again, lies at exactly that axis, interdisciplinary axis between history and the understanding of, of philosophy of aesthetics or literature, um, um, and that enables us to rethink the perimeters, uh, the paradigms, the basic paradigms of our own times uh, and own politics, the, the um, or you know the spirit of the time, if you like. Well, those sound like excellent and interesting projects. So perhaps we'll have a chance in the future to talk about a, a new project. Um, so Nitsa, let me thank you for uh, being on the show, and uh, I look forward to um, a future encounter. Thank you very much, and I would like to urge um, listeners to to create contact, and you know, feel free to to um, um, to make their voice heard. Great, thank you, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.